Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, a place where we discuss the niche practice of forensic psychology. The show episodes will take you on a trek through the intersection of law and human behavior and even some true crime. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Vienna, Forensic Psychologist and Clinical Director at Vienna Psychological Group. And although I am a licensed psychologist, please note that this podcast and information presented on this podcast is for education and informational purposes only and may not be construed as medical, psychiatric, or legal advice. The information on the podcast episodes are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, nor is it intended to replace any medical or legal advice offered by your physician, treating doctor, or lawyer. All right, everyone, this is the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, another great episode for you today. I had the chance to sit down and interview Dr. Chris Mulkey, all about child custody evaluations. Let me tell you a little bit about him before we jump into the episode. Dr. Mulkey is a licensed psychologist in North Carolina and Hawaii, specializing in matters related to family law and psychological evaluation. Dr. Mulkey's practice includes evaluation and consultation services pertaining to child custody matters to attorneys and courts. He conducts child custody evaluations, parental capacity evaluations, psychological evaluations, and neuropsychological evaluations. Dr. Mulkey serves as the president for his local psychological association. He also serves on the board of directors for his state psychological association, as well as the International Council of Psychologists. Dr. Mulkey has presented on human rights panels in Japan, Canada, and Mexico. And for anyone that has follow-up questions afterwards, feel free to send me an email or to Dr. Mulkey. He's very open to that. Or reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook. My messages, my inbox, they will be open. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Mulkey. Welcome back, everyone. Today's episode is going to be all about custody evaluations and to help us you know, go over that, talk about relevant case law, some ethical concerns, and a lot of really good information is Dr. Chris Mulkey. So welcome to the show. Thank you for giving us some time out of your busy schedule. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. I'm excited about your podcast because I think it's going to offer a great service to, to seasoned forensic psychologists and those of us who are, are trying to learn about different types of forensic psychology and forensic evaluation. So I'm glad you're doing this and I'm humbled to be on your show. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I have to tell you that this topic area is probably the most requested and I haven't done it yet because I just haven't found someone that was actually interested in sharing knowledge, which I don't know if that's common in this area of custody evaluations <laughs> or evaluators, but it's not, not like it was a bad thing when I approached some people in the past. It was just like, oh, there's just so much out there and there's so much disagreement within the field. I don't want to give misinformation. So I know we really appreciate you being here and I get requests not only from students, but from attorneys that are interested in learning more about this. Well, that's probably a good place to start for your listeners. If you're interested in this area, it's really important to reach out to folks like me. You're welcome to send me an email. If you don't want to work with me or consult with me, you're welcome to ask me for folks in the field that I, that I consult with, that I see as mentors. And I think it's really important to have those tough conversations because it is a really difficult type of forensic evaluation. Yeah. And can you, let's just open it up right there. What, if I can ask you, what makes it so difficult or challenging? Because <laughs> I know nothing about this so, area. 
Yeah, my colleague, Sean Canuse, he's a psychologist in Charlotte, North Carolina. He calls this area nebulous. And I really think that that's a good way of describing child custody evaluations. They are somewhat nebulous. And the reason for that is the history of how we got to do child custody evaluations as well as different standards. Well, we'll talk more about the best interest standards, but how the best interest standards are different in different states, different jurisdictions makes it nebulous. And honestly, Nicole, like you can have two evaluators in the same city conduct the evaluation very different. And we in the field are trying to address that. We're trying to have more consistency. But as we talk today, we'll talk about why that happened and why there are such differences in the way two forensic evaluators may approach a child custody evaluation. Right. And can we just start with a brief definition of what a custody evaluation is for those who don't know, or maybe just hear it all the time in their everyday settings, or maybe someone has been involved in a custody evaluation? Can you just give us like a a brief definition? Like what is a custody evaluation? I'll try to give you a short definition and then we'll we'll dig in a little bit deeper. Perfect. It really is a data gathering process to help the court make determinations regarding the best interest of the child or the best interest of the children. And if you think about the way the court system addresses family systems and children, most of the time, people who divorce are able to determine a parenting time schedule that works for them. They're often able to do that without any help. Sometimes they may need a specialist like mediators or parent coordinators or arbitrators or even a family therapist to help. And we call those processes alternative dispute resolution processes. So many families can do it by themselves, figure out a good schedule for the kids after divorce. But if they can't figure it out for themselves, they can then try to use an alternative dispute resolution process. When that fails, then they may go to the court system and ask a judge to determine the parenting time schedule. In many scenarios, the majority of scenarios, the judge is able to hear that information and make a determination. But every once in a while, the family dynamics are so complex that the judge asks for a psychologist or a psychiatrist or in some jurisdictions, a social worker to help with that process. And and in that, the evaluator is conducting a psychological investigation. And that investigation examines the family system, looks at the parenting attitudes of the parents, their abilities to co-parent, the child's psychological needs, the child's physical needs, the child's educational needs, the abilities of the parents to meet that child's needs, and then other factors such as logistics. I was talking with a colleague this morning about a case in which one parent worked all the time and the other parent was available for the kids. So sometimes it's as easy as logistics. In those cases, it's normally that the judge or an arbitrator can help determine that. But the process is such that the majority of families are able to determine parenting time by themselves. Some need those alternative dispute resolution services like mediators, parenting coordinators, arbitrators, family therapists. Then the ones where that doesn't work, they may talk to a judge and see if the judge can determine things. And then if the judge really feels like, wow, this is a really complex situation, they'll ask a psychologist to look at all of those factors that I mentioned. It sounds like a pretty comprehensive evaluation. 
or it, it needs it, to be, right? In my opinion, and I think this is pretty well documented in the research, I think that it's the most comprehensive forensic evaluation, and it may be the most comprehensive evaluation that any psychologist does. There may be forensic psychologists out there who disagree with me, and, and if I'm wrong, please send me an email, let me know. But it, it takes a tremendous amount of investigation and data gathering to understand these complex family systems. Right. So let's kind of open that up a little bit. You mentioned that these evaluations might come into play when there are complex family dynamics. So can you give us some examples of when you would become involved? Like what kind of complex family dynamics do you see? And then last, of course, I know these are three questions here, but the third question I have in this set is how do you approach such an evaluation, right? How do you approach those doing this? Yeah. So let's, let's, let's break those down a little bit. So the first thing is how, how do, like, what are the dynamics that might lead to an evaluator being involved? Right now, one of the hot topics is alienation. So oh, yes, I've heard that uh, a lot. Say that I'm going to use kind of some terminologies like parent A and parent B. And I'm going to say parent A and parent B because I'm not going to try to use mom and dad or Much refer to any yes, of that because yes. that just becomes difficult with, with gender bias and such. So say parent A uh, has a great relationship with the kids and the kids are refusing to go to parent B's house during parent B's parenting time. And parent B says, parent A is saying all sorts of terrible things about me to the kids. And now they're refusing to come meet with me. And those two parents start making all sorts of allegations about what's being said to the kids, what's happening to the kids. Maybe parent A says, no, the kids don't want to meet with you because you're a jerk, because you're mean to them, because you abused them, because you did this or that, or you said something. As that process unfolds, they can go to an arbitrator. They can go to a family therapist, but they're just making allegations back and forth. And it can be really difficult to figure out what's really happening here. They can go in front of a judge and say, hey, parent A is speaking bad about me in front of the kids. And the judge may say, okay, show me the proof. And they may not have any proof. And so that's a common situation in which a judge will say, I'd like a child custody evaluation. I'd like somebody to look closer at this family dynamic because I'm not really sure what's going on. So that's how they can get to the point of requesting a child custody evaluation. And at that point, the attorneys may agree to, to put forth a court order to have an evaluator named. And this is really important for anybody listening who does not do child custody evaluations and is interested or you're just getting started. That court order that names you as a child custody evaluator should be very, very, very clear. I got one recently where it just said, Dr. Molke will conduct a child custody evaluation of the so-and-so family. And exactly, what does it mean? Well, we know in forensic psychology that we are in the process of assisting the court. And as experts, we're trying to answer specific questions to help the court, to aid the trier of fact. Well, if the court order just says conduct an evaluation, we don't know what those specific questions are. And many states have a best interest standard that tells the courts and tells evaluators what to look at in terms of what's in the best interest of the child. But even those are pretty darn vague I could read one, but we probably don't have time for that. My state, my home state of North Carolina, does not have a best interest standard. Even if it did, it'd probably be pretty vague. So we need to ask the court. We need to go back to the court and say, this is a really vague order. 
I need specific questions to answer. And the specific questions may be, or I'm going to pull one up. I won't read the, the names or anything, but here's, here's a specific question. The evaluator should conduct an evaluation with special attention paid to the emotional, mental health of each parent with respect to the ways in which the child is likely to benefit from each parent's emotional strength and the ways in which the child is likely to be adversely affected by each parent's emotional mental difficulty. So that's one item on a child custody order. Another one is pay attention to the emotional and physical needs of the child with specific attention to paid to ways in which the child is likely to benefit from each parent's emotional mental strength and so forth. And you can kind of see where these go. Another item might be, does the child have special needs? Is either parent able to meet those needs? And if you have a a very clear order that addresses something like, does the child have special needs? That is something, the forensic psychologist, that we can answer. There may be things on the order that we can't fully answer, but we can gather data and present that data to the court for the court to make a determination. Right. So it's really important that we push back on a vague order and ask for specific guidance from the court as to what we are looking at. I gave the example a moment ago about alienation. Another item on the court order may be, are there any indications that either or both parents has or have engaged in alienating behaviors. How do you define that? Can I interrupt you really quick? Because I hear about that in California here all the time. I mean, not just from professionals, but in my personal circle of friends, family, whatever, or extended circle, if you will. I hear the term parental alienation. Oh, he's he or she's alienating my child from me. I'm going to take it to court. What? How do you define alienation behaviors? That's a really great question. I'm really, really excited. I have a new book coming out with with two colleagues who are just absolutely the greatest, Ben Garber and Dana Prescott. And we're hoping that ABA will publish the book this upcoming fall. It's getting really close to being released. And in that book, we have a whole chapter on alienation and how to define it. It's very complex. What's really interesting is just this week, I attended a workshop, I'm going to try to be vague, okay. um, in which an attorney presented theories of alienation. The attorney said the theories, the concepts were backed by quantitative and qualitative data. They are not backed by quantitative data. I I feel really bad for all the different attorneys who attended the workshop. There's a lot of misinformation in the workshop and 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 it's scary. Mm -hmm. There's a couple books published recently that have a lot of inaccurate information. And so it's, it's really concerning that there's a lot of information about alienation that's inaccurate or not backed by quantitative data. Let me tell you a little bit about what our definition is of alienation and the definition that we use in our book that's going to be coming out hopefully this fall in 2021. So alienation is a family system dynamic that's characterized by one child's alignment with parent A and resistance to or refusal of contact with parent B due to his experience of parent A's or her allies' unwarranted negative words, actions, and expressed emotions about parent B. So it's a triangulated child who has become polarized within the adult conflict and takes a rigid and consistent position in favor of one parent and against the other parent without, without 
disproportionate or objective reasons, if that makes sense. So it's not that one parent is abusing the child. It is that one parent is saying negative things, acting in negative ways that has caused the child to refuse and resist contact with the other parent. Like parent, parent A's behavior is influencing child's response towards parents B involving these different alienated behaviors. Yeah, so there, there are a lot. And there's also a lot of things that look like that and mimic that. I have had cases, and I'm going to be really vague so that it, it's not clear what I'm talking about, but I've had cases where it looks like it's an alienated behavior, alienated situation. The child's refusing to go with, with parent B during parent B's parenting time and refusing to talk about it in therapy. Parent A is alleging all sorts of things. And then I talk to the child and say, so tell me about what's going on and why you're not going to see parent B. And I, I kid you not, the child said things like, this. oh, well, my best friend who lives next door only comes to visit his parents on Saturday. Uh-huh. Yep. And I just really want to be with my best friend. Like, I just like, that's like my priority. That's what I want to do is just hang out with my best friend. And I'll ask a follow up question. So I hear that. And tell me more about why you're not visiting parent B. Oh, I want to, but just not on Saturdays, because on Saturdays, and, and you get this story that is not that complex. It's not certainly not alienation, but it's been framed as being alienation. That and maybe this dynamic has been going for six months, a year, two years, longer. And so we really need to look at the child's belief system, their rationale, what they understand of the family system. And we're using a lot of those family therapy family systems concepts like triangulation to understand what the child knows of the parent's conflict and how that's influencing the child. I can imagine this comes up a lot with teenagers, you know, going <laughs> going to parent B's house on Saturday is just not convenient. The days are not convenient for them. So I'm wondering, this might be a very naive question, but does the child's opinion of what's convenient for them or their just maybe even their opinions on what they want is that taken into account into the evaluations and then in the courtroom? Yes, the child's voice is really, really important. Okay. And there's research, there's papers, people have talked about it, talked about prioritizing the child's voice. There's some good articles. If you're listening and, and you're looking for good articles, send me an email, let me know. But the challenge though, Nicole, is like there's this understanding that the child's voice is really important and it's difficult to figure out how to do that. Courts say that they want to hear from children, and yet we know that asking children to testify is pretty anxiety-provoking, and there could be a lot of factors that impact what a child does when they testify. So we want to be really sensitive to that, and I have found that in doing a child custody evaluation, sometimes interviewing a child two times is enough, but sometimes it's not. I had one situation where I think it was the fourth interview, the child really just opened up and said, Hey, I got to tell you, I lied to DSS about this. I lied about this. I feel really guilty about it. And let me tell you how I feel about both parents mm. and just opened up. So one of the challenges in a child custody evaluation is how do you get there? How do you get to interview four? And so maybe we could kind of unpack what's included in an evaluation. That's a great place. That to might turn. be a- That's a great place to turn to. Can I ask one more question, though? Sorry, this yeah. is just like lingering. And I've, I've received this question, too, from a couple of folks interested in this episode. Excited to hear about it. What and, and if you can answer it, this may not be a question that you're able to answer. But what happens when the child or how is that looked at when the child 
doesn't want to go with like parent B at all or parent A, whichever parent. They just say like, I'm not interested, you know, like older teenager, I don't want to go over there. I mean, you, it sounds like you explore, of course, the child's belief systems and why that's definitely taken into account, but is it ever, I guess what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to frame this question that was sent to me a little bit better. (laughs) Basically it says like, if child A doesn't want to go with child B because, you know, they just don't like the parent's attitude towards them or et cetera, et cetera. Is it okay that they just stay with, you know, the other parent because that's what they choose and they feel more comfortable that's like what they're, you know, that's what they're expressing in court or to the evaluator that they just don't want to. Maybe they don't have a good reason. It says they don't have a good reason. Just they don't want to. Does that? Yeah, sense? I think that, that that does happen. I certainly had cases like that. And so we're thinking about the entire system and we're trying to understand, is there something about parent B's household that, that could change, that could improve? Is there something about parent B's weaknesses as a parent? or parenting capacity that could improve or change. We may not know all of those factors. And it is okay and often the case that we complete a child custody evaluation and we can't answer everything. In fact, many times we complete an evaluation and we say, here is the data that we gather. Here is how I take my psychological training and understand this data within the legal construct. Okay. That, I mean, it sounds like you're investigating, like you mentioned earlier. That's, that's right. And sometimes, sometimes we are simply presenting hypotheses that we may not have an answer to. So we may say, and I'm going to use, oh, actually, I'll try to use parent A and parent B. I was going to use mom and dad. So I'll just use mom and dad. And, and please don't think me as gender biased for saying it this way. So an example is, Mom asserts that dad is incapable of providing adequate care. The hypothesis is that her concern is legitimate. Her concern that dad is incapable of providing care is legitimate. A rival hypothesis is her concern is without basis. Presented in the report are statements from collateral contact. Collateral contact being interviews with therapists, neighbors, community members. Some of those statements may support one hypothesis, some of them may support the rival hypothesis. And then the evaluator can present that to the court and allow the court to decide where to put the weight, where to place emphasis. So there are times where a child may not know, and you just may be collecting data about the family system and presenting that to the court. Right. That's important. Like you're presenting that data that you find to court. You're not always making the ultimate opinion, right? In fact, you may never make the ultimate opinion. Um, There's a very important article by Tippins and Whitman in 2005 in which they go through the process and they say, you know, as psychologists, we really shouldn't be making the ultimate opinion. That's, that's for the judge. That's for the court. The court has that authority. As a psychologist, we don't. That's good because I didn't know that about custody evaluations. I know in our, like in my work in criminal court and criminal evals that I do, that we don't make the ultimate opinion. But that's good to know about custody evaluations because I, I often, I guess my understanding was the evaluator, my naive understanding because I don't do this work. No, no, makes, no. It makes a determination. Yeah, and, and if you read in in the literature, there are many, many authors who acknowledge that that great challenge, and and many authors who say don't weigh in on the the absolute like visitation schedule because there isn't any like test. We can't. We'll get into testing, but we can't get the MCMI, and we shouldn't get the MCMI, but we can't get the MCMI and then know how much time the kid should 
go with mom or go with dad. Like it just doesn't work that way. We don't have data like that. So many books and authorities in the field will say, do not weigh in. But here's the catch. And this is the other side of that piece. Many times, not always, but many times the court will ask you to weigh in. And that becomes really difficult. So your sense that this does happen and that evaluators are weighing in on the ultimate opinion is because they are doing this for the court. They're doing this evaluation for the court. The court is the client, right? In forensic evaluation, the court is the client. And the client is asking, please tell me what your specific recommendations are regarding custody. And if you're a forensic psychologist and you're not listening to the court, you're not listening to your client, you may not get referrals. You may not get court orders. And so that's the other side of it. And let me go back to a court order and tell you how this might be written. So a court order might say the examination or evaluation should result in a written report that contains a description of the procedures employed, a report of data collected, an explanation of how the resulting recommendations were reached from the data collected, specific recommendations as to custody and visitation, and an explanation of any limitations or reservations in the report. Mm. Well, certainly a limitation is that Tippins and Whitman in 2005 said, don't make a specific recommendation as to custody and visitation. So very difficult when a court order asks you to do something that many authors in the field say you shouldn't do. So how do you, and how so, do you handle that? That's right. It's a great conflict. And it's debated at conferences. We talk about it a lot. We talk about it with colleagues. It's really important to have those conversations. You can reach out to Tim Pittman. You can reach out to Jeff Whitman and say, mm-hmm. Dr. Whitman, please, please <laughs> guide me, help me, mentor me in this. I know in folks that I mentor, some of them will reference Tippin to Whitman. Some of them will reference the analytical gap that there's simply an analytical gap that we can't bridge between the data we gather and making that ultimate opinion. And we want to be really, really, really mindful of making any big statements about how child custody should be arranged. Because really, that is that is um, for the court to decide. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm just digesting all of that. And I can imagine the uh, anxiety that a new evaluator might have or Maybe it's just me. That's that's probably why I don't I, I didn't go and do these evaluations. <laughs> it's my own stuff. But okay, let me we took a little left turn. Let me bring us back then and open up how you approach such an evaluation in terms of like you have all these parties involved, right? We have parents. That's right. Sometimes step parents too, I'm imagining. Oh yeah. And, and grandparents oh like Granville gosh. and we got mm-hmm. all sorts of huge family systems. Multiple children. So oh yeah. And and sometimes um, stepchildren, like the Brady Bunch situation, and you get you got all different types of situations. So there is some flexibility here. So I'll tell you how I do it. And I'm always concerned about balancing my interviews with parents. I don't want to have five interviews with mom and then five interviews with dad. And at the end, mom had the primacy effects or primacy benefit and dad had the recency benefit. And right. Is the information I gathered biased? I don't know. So or I should say, yeah, it is. So I start with a meeting with both parents at the same time. Some parents don't want to sit in the same room. Over the pandemic, we've been doing it via Zoom. But both parents at the same time, let's talk about this process. Let's talk about what we're going to do. Many evaluators 
will start with a statement of understanding or an agreement. In John Gould and David Martindale's classic book, The Art and Science of Child Custody Evaluations, they have sample statement of understanding. Here's how I'm going to do it. They'll have a meeting or we'll have a meeting with both parents at the same time. Let's start on the same page. Nobody gets the primacy of that or bias. And then I do very long interviews with each parent. I try to balance them. So I may interview parent A, then I'll interview parent B, then I'll interview parent A and then B and hear their stories. I found over time that it's really, really complex to say to someone, tell me about your parenting, tell me about this conflict, tell me about your children, the emotions, the data, it just starts flowing and it can get really difficult. So I use a lot of structured questionnaires. And Ben Garber has a book on, and you can get on Amazon or on on his website, Ben Garber has a book of questionnaires that you can use. These are qualitative questionnaires, and it helps gather information. Hey, I see on the questionnaire that you said that you got married in uh, 1995, and that you had your first kid in 1998, and started having conflicts in parenting strategies around this time. And you said your parenting strengths were this, this, and this, and your parenting weaknesses were this, this, and this. Tell me more. So you can start off by gathering a lot of data with the questionnaires, and then that helps the interviews be much more fruitful. After interviewing both parents for many, many hours, I then interview the kids, and I want a balanced approach with that. I don't want to just interview the kids when mom brings them, and I don't want to just interview the kids when dad brings them. Because we're concerned about coaching, we're concerned about the influence. David Martindale talks about bookends, bookends being what happened before the child was dropped off at your office, what's going to happen afterward, what was the kid told to tell you. Those types of things are really important. So I'll schedule time for mom to bring the kids, and I'll schedule time for dad to bring the kids, and I'll interview the kids individually. And yeah, if we have a bunch of kids, that can be pretty complex. You mentioned step-parents, if there's step-parents involved, I should have mentioned that before. Particularly if they have a role in parenting, I'll be interviewing them, okay. as well as grandparents, aunties, uncles, whoever's in the family system. Then I'll observe the parents with their kids at their home. And there are some debates on how this best to do that. Certainly an unfamiliar, a unique situation to have a psychologist in your home watching you play Jenga or Uno with your kids. So there's some factors to, to think about. Some evaluators will will go to a family's house for dinner time, observe the family having dinner and do bedtime routine and see the parenting strategies that the parent employs during that time. Wouldn't you see people on their best behavior, though, during these times? And how reliable is that? That's a great question. It's a great question. It's a big concern. And when you're there for a long time, you do see various dynamics that emerge. How reliable is it? We have to weigh that when we're thinking about integrating the information. However, if you go to someone's house and the attachment looks strong, the limit setting, the parenting skills look strong, the, the situation's safe, and, and there's a lot of positive dynamics there, you can feel that that might be reliable, that there's a familiarity there for the child. If you go to a home and there are safety concerns, there are very complex or the parent is ignoring the child during your observation. So it may be, Nicole, it may be some of the outliers that, that you're seeing during those observations. Mm-hmm. 
but they are an important part of this data collection. Um, I will also interview a bunch of collateral contacts, therapists, social workers, folks that are involved with the family. Teachers are really important, particularly if the child has special needs or learning challenges. We'll do some psychological testing. And there's, there's good debates on how much testing should be done. I'll tell you my opinion. For the parents, I give them the MMPI and the PAI plus, and then I do critical analysis and interview them based on their responses. I also have the parents complete the BASC-3 about their children to learn if there are any behavior problems or specific problems that the children are exhibiting. And I give them the BASC-3 parenting relationship questionnaire. And what I'm most interested in the BASC data is the follow-up interviews and whether or not the data is consistent. Mm-hmm. So one parent may say that the kid is perfect and or in the normal range. And the other parent may say, oh, there are major problems here, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to over-rely on any scale or any bit of data. But I'm going to follow up and say, hey, I noticed this discrepancy. What's going on here? Or I'm going to ask the teacher. When I interview the teacher, tell me about this. Are you concerned with ADHD? I see one parent's expressing concern with this. What's happening in the school? And then I might interview the parents again and wrap up the report. You'll find in talking with child custody evaluators that that structure is going to be a bit different depending on the evaluator. So I don't want to say that my process is what everyone does. In fact, there's some jurisdictions, some places where families may not have the money to pay for all of that. And so we have some evaluators who do um, much shorter processes. But for the most part, these child custody evaluations are really, 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 really litigated. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be as thorough as possible if the families have the resources to, to compensate us to do so. Are you ever interviewing these parents together on follow-up interviews if there's discrepancies between their reports or there's in the self-report measures? No, for the most part, I'm just, the only thing that I'm doing with the parents that is together is that initial meeting. Okay. And I have colleagues that won't do an initial meeting together. They might meet with parent A on Monday and parent B on Tuesday or try to meet with them the same day. So that recency or primacy effect isn't as significant. But it's my policy to try to meet with them both for that initial meeting together. And then that's the only thing that we do together. Okay. And so you described a couple measures or you listed a couple that you commonly use through your evaluations. Are there any others that you might include? It sounds like there is some personality assessments for the parents and behavior measures or the behavior checklist for the children to get their opinions on problems or behaviors that their kids might be struggling with. What else did you, what other kinds did you mention? I don't know if you've got any others. So some evaluators will use the parenting stress index or other measures like that to look at parenting. Um, Some folks use the CAPI, the Child Abuse Potential Index, which really just looks at physical abuse if if you look at the data on it. I used to use those. I, I don't use those anymore. I don't find them as reliable as I would like them to be. I'm very, very clear in working with folks that when I'm mentoring or, or providing consultation, really clear that we should not be using IQ tests. If you're doing a child custody evaluation and you're concerned about a parent's intelligence, you should really think about uh, Greeks versus Duke Power and 
the ability. We're really looking at parenting abilities. We're not worried about IQ. We're not worried about what happens on an IQ test. We're worried about whether the parent has the capacity to parent. And so we can measure that by observing the parent, by talking to collaterals and seeing, does this parent have the functional abilities to parent? We don't use IQ tests. Some people still do. We're trying to trying to talk to them about that because we really shouldn't. should be looking at functional abilities. And then we're, for the most part, not using the MCMI. Some folks do the MCMI-4 in the manual says this was not normed for child custody evaluations. It's great warning against doing it. I just read a decision in which, and I'm going to read it. I'm not going to read the whole decision. But a line in the decision says, this is a, a licensing board decision against the psychologist. And it said, respondent conducted unnecessary personality assessments. Respondent used the MCMI-4 despite cautions against its use in the child custody context. Wow. Yeah. That, that's pretty significant. And here's the problem with the MCMI. The MCMI has three scales that can be either positive or negative. And I don't want to say what the items are, mm-hmm. but you can look in the MCMI-4 manual. You can email me and we can talk about it. And I can talk about those three scales that can be positive or negative. And it's hard in a child custody evaluation because parents may try to present favorably. And so they may endorse things that then raise those three scales. And, and the evaluator has to decide, is, is this diagnostic? Is this a concern? Or is this a strength? And, and that can be really difficult. And for the most part, recommendation, and David Martindale has a good article on this, is that we don't use diagnoses in a child custody evaluation. We're looking at functional impairment or functional ability. Now, certainly, if a parent is so depressed that they can't get out of bed to help the kid get on the school bus, that's what we're concerned about, the not supporting the kid to get on the school bus. We're not concerned about depression, if that makes sense. Okay. We're looking at how that parent's abilities impact the child and the child education or the child reception of nurturing. And so if you know, I, I'm not sure myself, how does the MMPI differ from the MCMI in buffering against? Oh, good. Yeah, that's yeah, a, in buffering that's against a great, that. That's a great, yeah, it's a great question. So there's more, there's more data on the MMPI. There are child custody comparison groups, really important to differentiate that from norms. I even saw this, you know this, Nicole, but I'm, I'm a moderator on the Testing Psychologist yes, Forum. Yes, and I, I, I had to address this yesterday. Somebody said, tell me about the MMPI norms for spinal cord or something. And I had to address it. I said, not norms, they're comparison groups. But mm-hmm. we have comparison groups for child custody evaluees for the MMPI 2 and the RF. Sadly, I volunteered and, and talked to Yossi about it. And we tried to get a comparison group for the MMPI-3, but we didn't have enough people to sign up. And so maybe we'll get that at some point, but we don't have that yet. So right now I'm still using the MMPI-2-RF because we don't have that comparison group for, for child custody litigants. And so it's that comparison group that helps us be more confident in, in meeting the Daubert standard, in meeting Greg's heuristic power, and saying, yes, this is a test. It can be used because we have research to back that we have comparison groups and we have articles that say how we should interpret the findings. And just to be clear, so you don't have to go out and look at all the data, the, the way you should interpret the findings is by doing a critical analysis 
in following up with the client after they complete the MMPI and saying, hey, I see that you endorsed Steve Eisen. Tell me more. Tell me why. What's going on? And, and then it's that answer, their response that is helpful. So there's a recent article about using psychological testing, if you're going to use it in child custody evaluation, using it for hypothesis testing. So that, hey, I see you endorse these items. Tell me more. Is testing the hypothesis, finding more about what the client thinks and feels. So there's so many parts to this evaluation. I mean, interviewing parents, step parents, administering testing, follow-up interviews. How much time, I mean, estimated, I know every case is going to be different. Yep. How much time would you say you on average spend on a custody case? And what's the yep. the range, I guess, of how many months it may take? So you may get the sense, and I'm hoping you get the sense from me that I am really thorough, that I really, I that really sense. value, I really value data gathering. I really value these processes. I really am interested in the child's best interest in, in learning as much as I can about family systems. So I spend a lot of time. Mark Ackerman is a psychologist who has produced a tremendous amount of literature in the field and has done surveys in which he's gathered data on how much time evaluators spend. And his most recent survey that I saw that I think was 2018, maybe 2019, said that most evaluators spend about 66, 68 hours per billable hours per evaluation. Wow. You will see a great range in that. There are evaluators, particularly in situations where families can't afford it, who can't spend that much time, spend a lot less time. Then there are evaluations in areas like where you live in which evaluators will spend a whole lot more time. So I don't have a good sense of what the average is beyond that 68 hours. I would assume that it varies greatly by jurisdiction and by evaluator. Sure. And I think... In California, I heard a while ago that Orange County, California, had the highest, the most costly custody evaluations and lasted several years, like this one particular case. Yeah, that's a great point. The time in which it takes to do this is an issue. And it can be the biggest issue is we're focused on the child's best interest. Several years of litigation, several years that it takes to do a child custody evaluation means the court doesn't have that data to determine what the child needs. And so these dynamics can become more pronounced over time. And as much as possible, we really need to be prioritizing these evaluations and and getting them done as quickly as possible so that uh, the court has that information to make a decision. Right. And so what are some of the best practices in the field? I mean, you mentioned a few throughout, but if we can highlight them. Yeah. So the absolute best thing, if you're just starting out, the absolute best thing is to find a mentor or someone to consult with. And if you're a seasoned evaluator, the best thing is to find a mentor or someone to consult with. I really think that we need to be working collaboratively together on these evaluations, particularly as we learn more about bias and the way that bias impacts the data that we gather, how we interpret that data. We need to be seeking support. So where do you do that? How do you do that? The best resource in child custody is AFCC. AFCC, the Association of Family and Conciliation Corps, great organization, membership's pretty affordable. We just had a recent conference and all of the talks were recorded. My talk was recorded. Everybody's was recorded and you could still watch them. So if you join AFCC, you have this huge library of video workshops 
that you can that you can learn from. The other great video workshop library is Concept. Concept has through Palo Alto University has a great video library. David Martindale has a lot of talks on there. It's excellent. I will list this actually in the show notes for people, the links to AFCC and Concept and That's great. Those are to go to and Academy of Forensic Psychology records theirs and those are posted on Concept. You can go to workshops through AAFP and those are great workshops and the conferences are great. But let me tell you a little bit about how I got a mentor. I was at one of those workshops and at the end of the workshop, the presenter said, hey, I am available for support. Email me, call me, talk to me, let's, let's consult. So I just started emailing, calling, talking, developed a professional relationship, got to the point, Nicole, where I was talking through cases during my conceptualization, during the process, getting advice, tweaking things, adjusting my trajectory, finishing the report, giving it to my to my colleague to review and give me feedback. And I do that for other psychologists. They'll send me their report. I'll read it. I'll get feedback. Hey, I think there's I'm concerned about this. I think you could gather more data here. Uh, here's a limitation. Did you think about this? Why did you use this test? You know, that kind of feedback. And it's through those consultations that we can become more, more confident in the data that we gather and how we present it to the court. Right. And, and also being mindful of practicing ethically in this area and in forensic psychology in general. That's right. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're still listening, <laughs> thank you for, for sticking with us. It may seem like a lot. Oh, we could probably but I re- I mean, do hours on this topic. This is just, you know, a broad yes, overview. <laughs> and there are all these resources out there and it may seem like a lot, but if you commit to it, I think it's one of the most rich areas because you get to know a family system. You get to know kids in the family really, really, really well. And so that you can develop in understanding of that family dynamic to present to the court. And while there's always more that we could do and always more that we can learn, I often feel like at the end of a child custody evaluation, I'm writing a dissertation about a family. I'm writing this huge document to try to assist this family in their litigation. And what's interesting, Nicole, I don't know what the numbers are on this. I know David Martindale used to have some numbers, but the majority of child custody evaluations are completed and then families come up with some agreement afterwards. They don't go back to court. Now, it is happening more and more that families will litigate and you may have to testify on what you what you learned during the evaluation, but a lot of time, evaluations are used for mediation. And that's really important. So we're gathering all this data, we're putting it together, we're adding our psychological concepts within our scope and within the court orders. And then we're giving it to the attorneys or to the court and families are mediating, coming up with a plan and hopefully getting to the point of resolving some of their disputes. Awesome. That is, I mean, it does sound like a lot of work. You mentioned writing a dissertation and that's all I can think about is, wow, these reports are probably... 50 pages or more? That's right. And they vary. I have some colleagues that are working on writing shorter reports. I'm working on writing shorter reports, but they can get very, very lengthy. It's it's not uncommon to see an evaluation, a thorough evaluation that's 70 to 100 pages or more. But we have to always remember the audience. We're Mm -hmm. writing this for attorneys and judges who read legal briefs, read things that are not that long. Like, and I think that it's difficult because we have all this data 
to put together. And I think a big next step in the field is going to be writing shorter reports. Maybe that includes a lot of the appendices that have, you know, the data gathering method so that an attorney can find where you gather data and how you formed your opinion. But the next step is really figuring out how to produce shorter reports that are easier to read for, for judges and for attorneys. The ultimate goal in forensic work, I think. How, <laughs> how to write concise reports that are yeah. going to take forever and a day, right? But yet be very thorough. Yeah, that's right. Ooh, one day. Okay. I want to be mindful of your time. And you provided so much information. And we may have to do a second follow-up so we can fill in some gaps and actually maybe elaborate a little bit more on this process. That's really important for custody evaluators. But as we kind of come to a close here, if you were to give your your younger self or maybe early career psychologists, students, you know, pieces of advice or a the golden piece of advice, what would you say is like one of the most important things to know or that like you would tell your younger self looking back, getting into this kind of work, doing custody evaluation specifically? I would tell myself that five years from now, 10 years from now, your favorite thing about the field will be collaborating with others. So start collaborating now. Contact the people that wrote the books that you love. Contact the people that wrote the articles that you admire or that you have questions about. Reach out to them and start a dialogue. Some of them might not be open to it, but the majority will. And it's through those dialogues, it's through those conversations and those consultations that that we learn, that we can develop confidence in what we're doing, that we can ask questions that may may feel difficult to ask if we're in a silo alone trying to understand a family system. Because it all comes back to the the way systems work. And in family court, we're trying to understand the family system. We can't do that alone. We need our own system of support and our own system of self-care and consultation and books and guidance. And it's through having our own system that we can then analyze other systems. And I wish that I would have earlier on committed more time to to working with my supervisors and my mentors in less time thinking that I could do any of it alone. I really, really, really value working with others. I really like that and appreciate that response. In fact, I mentioned that I think probably on the episode that's going to be released very soon on a listener Q&A. One of the other most common questions I get asked from students and new grads is how do I get into this work? What do I need to do to be successful in this work? And my response has been to them lately, you know, just thinking back on my career and my time in grad school and my journey was start networking early, make contact with your professors, sit with them, learn from them, like find mentors, like build your network of support in this field because it can get really lonely, especially in private practice. And we can't do it alone. So building a network is super important. And I just mentioned what I said on my last episode. So thank you. Good. I like it. I like validating. That's good. And students in early career psychologists or mental health professionals, attorneys as well, we do a lot of consultation for attorneys. So Mm -hmm. all of you think about, you're probably thinking in your mind, I don't have time for it. I don't have money for it. But here's the thing. If you put time into consultation, the time that you then spend on a case 
writing a report, conceptualizing becomes more efficient. Mm-hmm. And so if you learn the concepts, if you learn through consultation, the rest of your work becomes much, much more efficient. And so that time is best spent on the front end in those supervision processes, in those consultation processes, so that you can then be better at what you do down the road. Right, exactly. And gives you peace of mind, less stress. And that ROI is just invaluable. Amazing. Oh, I still feel that, Nicole. I still (laughs) call up my colleagues and say, oh my gosh, I got a scare. Or, oh my gosh, I'm worried about this case. Uh, Can I consult with you? And and then I get off the phone and I think, ah, that just feels so much better to, to hear their input, to integrate their input. And, and now I can go off and have a great weekend or and stop worrying about whatever it was I was worried about before. Exactly. Well, I appreciate your time. And as we were ending, any last minute sentiments, anything we forgot, maybe part two later? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I think about is I think about data and reliability, you have about reliability. And when we think about family systems, we have to think about the context. And the last thing I would say is data is only reliably interpreted when we consider the context of all the collected information. And child custody evaluations are a great example that we need to think about context and how we can't rely on one piece of data. We need to go out and investigate and learn more about the family system. And if we just get an outlier piece of data, then we report that to the court. I got this little piece of data. I don't know what to do with it. I don't have any other data points that suggest that it's accurate, but, but here you go. Decide how much weight to put on it. But really thinking about context-specific interpretation and, and how that relates to the family system and what we can reliably report to the court is incredibly important as they're trying to make important decisions about children's future. Yeah. So many good nuggets that you're providing. Good. I dig it. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. The Forensic Psychologist Podcast is a project of Vienna Psychological Group. If you like this show, please consider leaving us a review and five stars. It helps get the word out to students and early career psychologists looking to get into the field of forensic psychology. You can find all the resources mentioned in the show notes below. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Dr. Nicole Vienna. I'll be back in about two weeks with another awesome episode.